as y'all know, I was born with four older sisters. So the minute I got here, I had four best friends. The first time I ever went to school was first grade. I didn't fool with kindergarten. I remember Sissy comes running up to me one day and says, hey, my mom said you could spend the night. So right after school Friday, you can come home with us and we're gonna watch movies, we're gonna go on hikes, we're gonna have a great time. Well, I was kind of taken aback and I was like, that sounds fabulous. Like, what is the occasion? Is it a birthday, a holiday? Like, why are we doing this? This was new to me. She said, because we're best friends. That's the first time anybody had ever called me that. And we are still best friends today, by the way. Over 50 years, we've been friends. And I remember that feeling that I didn't just have a friend, I had a best friend. All right, let's get in this thing about Susan Morphew. Suzanne Morphew got married in 1994 to Barry. They eventually had two daughters, Macy and Mallory. In 2018, they moved to Colorado from Indiana. They wanted a fresh start. They had had some issues. Suzanne had had cancer. It had returned. Macy was in high school. Mallory was leaving for college. So if they went to Colorado, they could be closer to Mallory. In September, Suzanne's best friend visited. Her name is Sheila Oliver. Well, as best friends do, they talked. They talked most of the night, most of the day, the next night. And Suzanne told her about her marriage, that it was failing. Thanksgiving, Suzanne visited with her best friend in Indiana. In February, Suzanne started to talk to a friend from high school, Jeff Liebler. That September, Suzanne started to confide in her friend more and more about her wanting to leave her marriage, to leave her husband, Barry. This is one quote from a text message. I sort of wish he would just get fed up with me and leave. I told him I'm done. Valentine's Day, 2019, Suzanne and Jeff became more than platonic in New Orleans. They met several more times. Later, Barry would tell law enforcement he didn't know anything about their relationship. In February, Suzanne and Sheila met up for a girls' Super Bowl weekend. Suzanne again started to talk about her marriage. She wanted out. In late February, Suzanne met up with Liebler in person in Florida while she was visiting her dad. May 6, 2020, at 10.17 a.m., Suzanne told Barry their marriage was over. Quote, this is a text message from Suzanne to Barry. I'm done. I could care less what you're up to. We just need to figure this out civilly. Barry writes back, sort of a suicidal stunt. Quote, when I'm dead, which won't be long, you and the girls will be taken care of. May 7th, Suzanne and Barry, they have pizza, but she's texting Liebler. Quote, it was kind of a fine night, end quote. February, May 8th, 7.02 a.m. Suzanne makes a list of grievances. One, Barry is accusing her of having a boyfriend. Now remember, later on down the road, he's telling the police he didn't know anything about an affair. Two, Barry acts like I'm intruding when I come into the garage. 
Later, we find out that Barry thinks she's got cameras in the garage. She texts her sister, quote, dealing with the harsh abrasiveness and showing respect. 10 a.m., Suzanne and Barry have a series of phone calls. Barry texts her, I love you, Suzanne. Saturday, May 9th, Suzanne texts Liebler, quote, we need to be husband and wife. Now, there's about 59 text messages between them. At 11.30 a.m., Barry comes home for lunch, but then he leaves to go change the blade on a bobcat. At 2.07 p.m., Suzanne sends a selfie to Liebler, and it's the last known moment she's alive. At 2.42, Barry returns home, and his phone shows he's moving all around outside. He later tells law enforcement between the 242 and 244 he's chasing chipmunks. At 640, her best friend, Oliver, told investigators she tried to reach Suzanne with no luck. At 924 to 952, the black box that's in Barry's truck shows that the doors are opening and closing over and over and over. At 925 specifically, According to that black box in the truck, the gears went into reverse and the truck backed up 96 feet to the edge of the driveway. May 9th and 10th, 2.47 p.m. until 4.37 a.m., Barry's phone is in airplane mode. 3.25 to 3.52, the doors of Barry's truck are open and closing again repeatedly. At 4.23 a.m., Suzanne, her cell phone, pings for the last time. Her phone has never been found. At 4.30 a.m., Barry told the police he woke up. At 5 a.m., Barry told the police that he left to fix a retaining wall. He said that Suzanne was sleeping in their bed when he left. He's the last known person to see her alive. At 5.38 in the morning, Barry texts his mom, Happy Mother's Day. At 6.56 a.m., Barry was near Bailey on his way to Broomfield. Now at 8.10, there's a video showing him throwing away trash. At 8.35, he's walking into the hotel. At 8.41, he tries texting Suzanne Happy Mother's Day, but got no response. At 10.10, Barry left the hotel. He's seen on video throwing away trash at a McDonald's, a car wash, and a men's warehouse. The job site is about 20 minutes away, but he couldn't do any work because he didn't have a work permit to work on Sunday. And again, keep in mind, this is Mother's Day. 12.42 to 5.55, Barry did not leave the hotel room. At 3.30 during that time, he texts Suzanne to call him. At 5.15, a neighbor, Jean Ritter, called Barry to say Suzanne was missing. At 5.38, the DA's office was notified there's a woman missing. And police say they found her bike down a ravine. At 5.45, Barry got a second call from Ritter about Suzanne being missing. At 6 p.m., Barry made several trips to his truck, bringing in tools to the hotel. 
At 6 p.m., Miles Harding, a friend of Macy's, drove to the house looking for Suzanne. Police arrived, and he told them, yes, she rides bikes, but she would never go up that trail. It's too steep and it's too hard. She'd never make it. At 8.46, Barry arrives home, and the first thing he says when he sees police is, have y'all saw any cats on the road? I'm going to bring in two guests that we need, bust it down to the most elementary thing. What do we have? So I'm going to bring in Tom Smith and Dan Murphy. Now, let me tell y'all about them. Tom Smith, NYPD, stellar career. The first assignment he had was the 3-0 in Harlem, honey. He was plain clothes. That's no joke when you're working in the busiest precinct in New York City. He worked narcotics. He worked gangs. He worked robbery. He was a part of the FBI Joint Task Force after 9-11. He received the Medal of Valor. Exceptional merit. Three commendations. Twice he was Cop of the Month in NYPD. He's joined today by Dan Murphy. Dan Murphy, 35-year career. He's an author. He's a retired detective sergeant, narcotics, organized crime, major case, gang unit, joint task force after 9-11. He was also the National Association of Police Organization's top cop. He responded to the World Trade Center after 9-11. And I want y'all to keep something in mind. After 9-11 occurred, they had to be perfect in their defense of this country so that that never happened again. Ladies and gentlemen, I am overwhelmed with gratitude and admiration for Tom Smith and Dan Murphy. Gentlemen, welcome to Zone 7. Cheryl, thank you so much. This is Dan. It is a, um, it's a privilege to be here and an honor with you. Your career is, is uh, something we can get into at a later date. We're, we're just honored to be on the show with you. Thank you. And ditto for me, Cheryl. Thank you so much for those overwhelmingly kind words uh, and the opportunity to be on this great show. And, you know, on a personal note, I got to watch y'all work at CrimeCon and just your care and concern for everybody there, victims, fellow officers. And it's one thing that Tom and I, the reason why we do the work that we do in many reasons, uh, for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is because we have a love and affection and a care and a genuine concern for the men and women who are out there protecting us 24-7. And that, that's, we took our oath and we're doing our part now as retired. Amen. If this was your case and you're standing there and a husband shows up with his wife that's been missing and the first thing he asks you is if y'all seen any cats out here, like did a, did a, <laughs> I mean, I can't even say it with a straight face. He's concerned about a mountain lion. He's given y'all the reason she's missing. When I pick my jaw up off the floor, because my jaw would drop at such a bizarre, ridiculous statement coming out of your mouth, it reminds me of OJ when he was called in the hotel in Chicago and uh, told his wife was dead. He said, oh my God, I'll get on the next flight. He never asked what happened. And OJ never asked about his kids because he knew they were okay. Right. So something stinks right away when that's the reaction, right? Um, is it hard evidence? No, but it could certainly lead you in the right direction. And I think there's a tendency to immediate look, immediately look at the spouse because in many cases of, um, of homicides in situations such as this, it is the spouse. But you always have to be open-minded. You have got to follow the evidence and not 
what you think. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is from um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, and he famously said, it is, a, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has facts. So you have to fight that tendency to immediately look at him and say, guilty. I think one of the first things you do is is use technology to your advantage and your benefit and, and what technology can give to a detective. Uh, like Dan said, the immediate reaction is to look at one particular party in this. And then what you do is you start working backwards. Now, you can have an opinion on a case because that drives where you're going to go, you know, and what you're going to do and the evidence you're going to try to gather. And my initial thing, and Dan and I did it together on numerous times, you know, is to use technology as your friend. And the immediate thing is the phones and to get his location at certain times. One of the most important things when it comes to a situation like this is the dates. You start working backwards with dates. Where was he at this point? Where was he at this point? Where was she at this point? You know, and then more the the technology comes into play with the text messages. Then you start building on that initial opinion you have. And then you just go from there where the evidence that you start to gather is going to lead you. I think also, if I can just jump on the back of that, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. Simultaneously, you want to know immediately all the technology, the answers you can get from that, but you want to put him on record as soon as possible. You want to interview him extensively about his whereabouts, what he knows. First of all, right now, we're talking about a missing persons case. At this point, it's a missing persons case, but you always have to treat those cases as though they could turn out to be the worst case scenario. In this case, it did. But get him on record. Where were you? Who were you with? Who saw you? What times? Why were you there? Well, explain your behaviors for the last 48, 72, whatever it takes. Was it a flag for y'all at all that this was Mother's Day? Could be a trigger. Yeah, that could be. You, you can certainly have it in your head, uh, but things just happen sometimes and dates just line up with certain days. But it would be something on your mind for sure, especially... You know, what you had said during your opening, Cheryl, and, and how far, how long in the day it took him to finally shoot her a text message of Happy Mother's Day. You know, normally with me, with Dan, that's the first thing in the morning. You know, as you wait and you wait because what's going on in his head, he's thinking of how to cover his butt. You know, oh, let me do this. And maybe that thought doesn't come until later on in the day. You know, so now the Mother's Day thing certainly comes into play. And especially, I mean, he didn't wake her up and say Happy Mother's Day before he left. There's no flowers. There's no restaurant reservation. The daughters are off camping. So it's Mother's Day. And you have chosen, I mean, you own the company, so you've chosen to work today. So it just seems like there would have been more of a, acknowledgement of the Mother's Day to me. Now, when he did text her at 846 or whatever and got no response, it seems like by the time Ritter would have contacted him, there would have been much more alarm because, hey, I hadn't heard from her either since 846 this morning. As I said before, you really do have to fight the tendency. You have to focus on everybody because everybody's a suspect. You don't know what the uh, outcome is going to be because it's just a missing persons case. But you don't know the full story yet, um, but you have to talk to as many witnesses as possible to figure out what's going on. 
granted his behaviors uh, in retrospect now look really weird. Well, why would you go up to work on Mother's Day? Well, that could have been an answer for that. Why did you not wake her up? That could have been a good answer for that. Um, they're having trouble in their marriage relationship. Maybe he just wanted to get away from the house for Mother's Day because it's an emotional day for him. This, I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just that you have to be as objective and open-minded as possible in these cases and not just zero in on the person you feel gives you the heebie-jeebies because he said something stupid. Now, um, do y'all hear Dan being logical and, you know, uh, brilliant and let's not jump? He's he's doing exactly what a detective sergeant should be doing. So he, he's absolutely right that you don't want to just take one, two, and three and you think you're at nine. We're not at nine. But I do think if I were to call and say, hey, Tom, Dan's being reasonable, so I don't want to talk to him anymore. I want, somebody, <laughs> I, want some, I want somebody to tell me, not logically, not reasonably, but as a mama, I would expect a little more than a text at 846, especially when you know you can't work on a Sunday because you don't have that permit. So are you just going somewhere to have an affair? Are you just not wanting to hang out with me? Are you going to set up so that y'all aren't off this timetable and you're setting things up anyway so that Monday you can get right to work? Like like Dan said, maybe that's logical. Maybe he went to get things into place so that they're not really losing Sunday. No, I agree. And, and you know, just saying that's that's why Dan was the sergeant, you know, to control <laughs> a detective like me who would, you know, just okay, lock him hey, up. <laughs> we need to do this, this, and this, and Dan having the, you know, wh where he is and the experience he has to go, okay, hold on, let's do A, B, and C. And that's how you have to work. You know, that, that's how you have to be patient with these because the more patient you are, the more you see clearly, the more, the better plan you have going forward with, with an investigative plan. You know, when, you, when you're rushing around and you have one thought, it gets clouded. You know, so when you when you have these cases, it is the, the team concept is so important, you know, to have two, three, four detectives and a sergeant to bounce things off because everyone has a different idea. Everyone has different experiences. And you put that together to create an investigative plan. Uh, you know, maybe two guys do one thing, two guys do another thing switch up interrogators, you know, to throw them off a little bit, uh, to get a different voice in there. Uh, you know, so there's, there's that concept of going forward. Uh, the good thing with this, uh, I shouldn't say good thing, but one of the interesting things with this is you had multiple people involved in a situation. So you can take that kind of storyboard, you know, and start listing who, who is, and then, like Dan said, immediately start talking to people and doing inter uh, interrogations and interviews. And then you start matching stories up. And that gives you a pretty clear, eh, a good clear view of what might have taken place. Once you start eliminating certain things, and you're go only going to do that through talking to people. That's the only way you're going to do it, is to get people's stories of where they were, what's going on. And then you start pinpointing mistakes, uh, you know, in what had happened. And that, that kind of gets you on a better road to solving this. So this guy, he comes in, he makes a statement about uh, mountain lions on the road, which is bizarre. 
So it, it is okay to let that register that his reaction was, we'll call it inappropriate or just difficult to wrap your head around. Why would he say that? And then, you know, over time, it'll hit you. Okay, he's trying to create some kind of an alibi. He's trying, you know, maybe she was eaten by it. Uh, if somebody's legitimately missing and you really care about and love them, you're not offering up alternate theories to their demise. You're helping the police find them. That's an excellent point. And there's a video. It's body cam from the officers that are on the scene searching for her. Now, they have found her bicycle. On the body cam, they are calling her name, seeing as she landed somewhere hurt. You know, did she hobble away from the bicycle, but she couldn't make it any further, thinking maybe she can, you know, holler, I'm over here. You know, I broke my leg or whatever. So they are literally, these strangers are calling for her name. When Barry hops out of the truck, he never once hollers her name. He doesn't call for her. He doesn't jump in and start, you know, going down the ravine and walking into the woods looking for her. He's offering them exactly what you said, Dan, something that is remarkable. It's unbelievable that himself would jump to a mountain lion. I mean, has a mountain lion ever attacked somebody? Of course, but it is so rare. Why would that ever even enter your mind? Right. Now, thinking about his mindset, he is, if he is responsible for her disappearance and ultimate, we find out homicide, if he's responsible for it, he's got a million things going on in his mind. He's trying to figure out how to play this and he's going to make mistakes. He's under enormous pressure. He's never been in this situation before. This is not an experienced killer. This is a guy whose emotions, if he did it, um, went crazy. He couldn't handle it anymore. And now he's playing cover-up. Uh, and the cover-up is where they mess up. It's because he will, he will say the wrong thing. He will contradict himself. Um, his text messages, his phone records will not jive with where he said he was and doing what he was. Um, when you look at the behaviors that you described earlier, the, the many stops to, and I've done my research on this case, as says Tom, the many stops he made into garbage dumpsters. There's really not a lot of good explanation for that. But does that mean that you're guilty of a homicide? Not necessarily. Could it be one piece of a bigger picture that you put together in a case? Yeah. But you got to be very careful in the beginning at this point because you have there's a couple of things. One, people will distract and try to get you to, to look another way. Uh, clearly, he tried that right away. And the other is they will attach themselves to you and want to become intimately involved with everything you're doing so they can guide it. And that's what you have to look out for. Uh, with a guy like this, and we've seen, I think, in other missing persons cases where the wife is missing and the husband is all over the police, offering all kinds of alternative theories as to what might have happened. That's distraction. But it could also be a genuine effort to find them. So you have to see if there's a difference there. Um, people who are not guilty of anything generally don't trip themselves up with their statements. And I think one of the best things Dan just said was, you know, when you have these, they're not professional killers. This is the first time he, he, he probably did this and he's not experienced in it. You know, he's not a serial killer. He's a one-time actor in a bad situation those mistakes are going to get made. And the best thing is when you start pinpointing, like Dan said, the movements, you know, on the phone, the movements of his car, those are all things he has to explain. You know, that's part of the interrogation. Now you have all this information and he has to explain 
Why did you do this? And those are the points where a lot of times they screw up because like, like we had said in the beginning, he immediately started with the reasoning of her being, you know, her disappearance, you know, the mountain lion and all this. But now he has to explain everything he's done for the next day and a half, two days. And that's where they get tripped up. And that's what you count on because of the lack of experience, you know, with driving to dumpsters and McDonald's and all that, not realizing that there is a camera everywhere on this planet now that's going to track everything everyone does. He's not thinking like that, you know, so boom, there's a mistake. He's not thinking that there's a box, a black box in his car to, to the amount of feet he backed up drove here. He's not thinking on those lines. That's all ammunition for detectives and investigators to use to go after him. Okay, so let's talk about mistakes. If it's him, and this is the reason law enforcement looked at him in the first place, many reasons, but when they do the search warrant at his home, they find a tranquilizer dart cap in the dryer. Now, that's not something you're going to ever find in a dryer for a legitimate reason. So now they're thinking, did he shoot her with a tranquilizer so that she couldn't fight back and then do something nefarious to her? And then the other thing they found, and I want y'all both to talk about these two things, is a spy pen. Now, Suzanne supposedly bought this pen to try to catch Barry, but it ended up she was on the recording talking about her affair with a married man, Liebler. So now law enforcement knows, okay, she was absolutely having an affair. They talked to Liebler. He tells them the truth. So now they know, is this motive? It's absolutely a motive. If a man or a woman feels their whole world is about to cave in, uh, it's absolutely a motive. Um, There may be other motives. You know, the, the text messages between them are very telling. The text messages between her and Liebler are very telling. What I read in the case is that Liebler did not voluntarily come forward. Correct. It was probably, what, four or five months before he was interviewed and came forward. Now, you can explain that away as being a married man afraid to have this blow up in his face. Or it could be he has something to hide. They, you know, But I think he was eliminated as a suspect um, at some point. But when you know, um, your question has to do with uh, the pen, the spy pen, uh, things like that. Um, this, is, this is a marriage that's not in a good place, right? Obviously, she's having a relationship with somebody else. She wants to leave. She's made that clear. Uh, what I've read about him is his personality is such that he's a control kind of guy. He likes to make the decisions. He wants to be in control. That's very hard for a person like that to take when somebody decides they want to break off with you. Oh, they've, they've decided they want somebody else. Um, it sounds like he lied about the whole knowledge of the relationship. Um, and again, we're at the very, very beginning of this investigation, and we don't know if she's alive someplace yet. We haven't found the body. All we know is she's missing. The phone activity has been cut off. Nobody has seen her. We have a missing persons case with an asterisk next to it that it might be moving on to the homicide category, but we don't know. So his posture, his entire posture should be, regardless of whether or not the relationship was falling apart, that's the mother of my children, I will do anything and I will let you look at anything. And apparently he was open to being uh, interviewed many times. He didn't say no. 
He was open to, you know, come in, search my house. They got a warrant, but he still, he didn't play games. He's, he tried to be open. But if you shoot somebody with a tranquilizer dart, it's actually a very ingenious way to eliminate a messy crime scene in the house. So there's thinking. That takes a lot of thinking. Um, I hate to say, probably listen to podcasts or watch true crime shows to learn about these things, but um, <laughs> he may have for all we know. <laughs> But that that takes thinking and planning. Tom, your thoughts on this? I that's what jumped out at me. Oh yeah, if he has an inkling of the affair, now the motive starts to creep into his head. Then the planning starts, the premeditation starts. Of how do I get away with this? Is it even possible to get away with? You know, when you start mapping out ways you can do it, and a lot of times it's it, then it becomes an impulse. All right, I think I can do it. You're not thinking rationally, obviously, as as someone who's going to possibly commit a murder, uh, especially to his wife. So you're not thinking rationally. So that does creep into his head. But the the premeditation definitely starts when you know he has the uh, thought of the affair. As a detective, as a, as a sergeant, you capitalize on that. Because of the inexperience, because it is an impulse and, and uh, the driving around is a mistake. And, and that's part of the not, uh, not being experienced. And uh, An- another thought about that, just to, to tag on to the back of what Tom was just saying, it depends upon who you're dealing with when it comes to certain things. Like, for example, what, what I've learned about reading about Barry Morphew sounds as though he may have narcissistic and or sociopathic tendencies. I'm not a forensic psychologist. I just know enough about people to know there are certain people who exist for their own pleasure and their own, you know, if someone doesn't make them feel like the sun rises on them, then they're no good in my life anymore. And watching interviews with Barry Morphew, and he's been open with them since he was arrested and all that other stuff, sitting with his children and very confidently proclaiming his innocence. Now, there are people who are guilty as hell who can do that. And then there is the rest of the population who the guilt of a knee-jerk emotional reaction will haunt them for their life and they will crumble. This guy doesn't seem to be that person if he did it. Well, let's talk about how narcissistic he might be. So he was arrested May 5th, 2021 for first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and attempting to influence a public servant. But there's one other thing I want y'all to talk about. Your wife is missing. This person, you know, she's had cancer. She got better. The cancer came back. You've got a beautiful home with her. You've got two beautiful daughters with her. And you don't know where she's at. With all that going on, though, you take it upon yourself to use her vote to vote in the presidential election. That's a different category of human being right there. Uh, We're not talking about a person who um, is going to be remorseful for their actions um, unless it helps them. These are the people who are completely without remorse until the sentencing and they break down in front of the judge to try to prove that they really care when in reality they're only crying for themselves. That is a very bizarre, there's a lot of bizarre things that he did and all that stuff adds up to a cloud of suspicion. What you've got to do is you've got to find concrete evidence to corroborate actions. You know, uh, they arrested him before the body was found. Um, 
that is a very difficult case for a prosecutor to make. They have been made, but it's very, very difficult because you have to present the theory to the jury as to what happened. And if you can't present the theory, you can't even present a cause of death. You don't have, officially, you don't have a medical examiner's report to show the person was a victim of a homicide. How do you do that? You can do it with a lot of circumstantial. So circumstantial homicide cases have been made. But in this case, they didn't have a messy crime scene at the house. They didn't have a messy crime scene in the car. They didn't seem to have a lot, by my estimation, to charge him. And I, I originally, when I read it, thought to myself, you know, there's always more that we don't know, right? Tom and I didn't work the case. We don't know it. The prosecutors, the detectives, they know the inside of baseball. They know why they charged. And it probably was for a valid reason. But in retrospect, I think I would have liked give them a little more time. Give people time. Let them unravel. Let them talk. People will talk. A guy like him is going to talk to somebody about this. You can't keep it in. And if he gets away with it, he's proud of it. You know, when you give people time, remember his, his entire life, once this started, has been a lie. People forget their own lies after a while. So if you, you let, like Dan said, you let him settle in, you let him kind of, quote unquote, get back to his life. Then you start asking him again about past stuff. And people forget their lies. They forget what they said. And that's when you start, you know, digging it a little more and getting more information. But, you know, that's a great point. You just, you wait. And I, and I agree with Dan with, with waiting instead of jumping on. It's very hard. A, a no body homicide. That, that is extremely hard because like Dan said, it's a theory you're working on. Yes, you can have all the pinpoints and this and that all you want. But when you don't have a body, you're given the defense. Yeah, they can come up with any excuse they want for anything you're presenting, you know, because you can't prove it. You know, it's still, uh, you know, because you still have that zero zero point one percent that maybe she just took off. You know, that's still out there. You know, probably, you know, as detectives and investigators, you know, and, and looking at evidence, you're going to come to an investigative decision and outcome in your mind of what you think, you know, the end is. But there is still that zero zero point one percent that you know she just went into hiding and she's gone. So that's why it becomes a very difficult case. And I agree with Dan. I would have waited myself also, and given him time to, like he said, unravel and go back at him with some some pinpointed questions and see if he trips himself up, which normally does happen. And you know, I went out there with Nancy Gray. She was doing a special. And I took my daughter with me, Caroline, because Caroline was exactly Suzanne Morphew's height. And uh, she was not a, a big person at all. She was tiny. And I mean, I know I'm from the South, but y'all, when I tell you the snowbanks and the vastness of this area where they lived, it was some of the most beautiful land I've ever seen. But Caroline asked me, she said, Mom, where would you put a body? And I was like, standing right here, there, 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 over there would be good, right there's good. I mean, there was so many places in these mountains with all this snow. I don't know how you would ever find her. 
And so that was one of the first things that kind of really resonated with me walking that area. When you drive away from their home, which was beautiful, you didn't have to go very far and there was nothing. And the idea that, you know, you could find a place where people didn't hike and they weren't skiing and they weren't camping and they weren't going for a picnic. You had all the places in the world to put her. No doubt about it. April 19th, 2022, they dismissed his, you know, charges without prejudice. I thought it was the right call. I thought having her remains are going to be the ticket to deciding whether he had something to do with it or a stranger. Right. And now the remains were just found not long ago. Correct. Uh, the 22nd of September. Yeah. Two weeks ago, literally. Mm -hmm. And we have... Um, I think the public has yet to be uh, made aware of the findings of the medical examiner's uh, uh, examination. And so we can all hypothetically discuss what may or may not have happened to her, but we have to wait until that comes in. And it's got to be a determination of homicide. While we're still waiting for a medical examiner's report, um, you can't deny that her being found in a shallow grave is evidence of a human being who's alive involved in her her demise, or at least her dis or at least the disposal of her body. Yep. The other big part of the ME's report is going to be the cause of death. You know, if it's a, a blunt trauma to any part of her body, if it's a stab wound, if it's something like that, you have to remember the amount of tools that he had at his hands. You know, and then you start you know, going into what he had in the home, in his car. So again, you start down that evidentiary road again uh, after you determine the cause of death, which hopefully they're able to do with probably so much decomposition of the body, but uh, hopefully they can get to that determination. This guy sounds like he probably was pretty calculated about how he did this. If, if he did, in fact, let's go you know, into the theoretical. If he did, in fact, use some form of tranquilizer on her in order to remove her uh, peacefully without mess and without resistance from the house, backed up the truck, puts her in the truck, takes her someplace, she's still sort of unconscious. He's not going to put a bullet in her head from a gun that's in his closet. At that point, with that level of planning, I mean, never put anything past a criminal. Criminals do stupid stuff all the time. This guy, if he did it, let's keep that caveat. He's planned it. And if he's planned it, he wants to make sure the homicide is done in such a way that doesn't directly make it easy to be linked to him. That doesn't mean he's thought everything out, but I just would think that that would be, it's not going to be a knife wound uh, where the serration matches the knives on his you know, kitchen countertop and one's missing. That is probably not going to be his MO. Um, there are a lot of ways to do somebody in without having that level of direct forensic link. That's a great point. You know, and I think if, if the three of us were in the war room just throwing things out, you know, to me, if there's clothing found with the remains, that's going to be the ticket. If she's wearing that bathing suit from the last selfie she ever took, then that tells you the timeline. That means she didn't have dinner wearing that. She didn't go to bed wearing that. So that's going to throw his statement, like you said earlier, keep him talking, where he said they grilled out, they made love, they went to bed, and he left while she's still sleeping. Not if she's in a bathing suit. And, you know, the, the crime scene, going back to the house, the crime scene in the house and the crime scene in the car, um, being husband and wife, living together, 
it, it, it pre presents the challenge of, of course, you're going to find my prints and my DNA in the house. Of course, you're going to find her prints and some of her DNA possibly in my car. So that, that creates that challenge. It's got to be convincing. It can't just be, you know, we found DNA from skin cells of her, hers or, or hair of hers in your car. Well, she's in my car all the time. And so that's, that's a hurdle that the defense, uh, the prosecution has to overcome with more convincing forensic evidence. And the other part of the, the evidence is the crime scene. You know, right now, the crime scene is where they found her. So they're going to have to, hopefully they did this, just she got to that area somehow, dragged, carried in a bag, whatever the case is. But there's a way that she got to that location. Somebody dug that hole. So maybe they cut themselves. Maybe, you know, something fell out of someone's pocket. You know, anything like that is possible. That's why the, the preservation of that scene is going to be critical in this investigation. Everything surrounding that area, the road, you know, uh, you know all of that is going to be part of the cause of death and, and possibly the purple. You know, and going back to the crime scene, crime scene integrity is unbelievably important in these cases. And the first persons on the scene have got to make sure that a crime scene is established that's much bigger than you think you would need. You can always make it tidy. You can never bring it out again once you lose that integrity. So make it a very large crime. In an out air, outdoor area like this, it should be a very big area. Huge. Yep. And you should pick up and sample, uh, put into evidence each and every item you see whether it be an empty beer can, a candy wrapper, a cigarette, whatever it is, save it. Amen. You never know what you're going to need it for. Don't throw anything out. Don't, don't look past. If there's a pile of garbage, take all of it. I worked a scene not long ago, and I collected something. And one of the officers standing there said, why are you taking that? That's not a part of it. I said, I don't know yet. I'm taking it because I don't know how it fits. That's why I need it. I worked on a homicide once. It was a press case in New York City, and it was um, there was four gang members in a car. Uh, it was a robbery homicide on Park Avenue. They passed around for courage little airline bottles of booze, and they committed their robbery homicide, and they took off. They left a the car there. They stole the car for the robbery. They wore gloves. They were very professional, but they left these bottles there. Now, the original investigating detective discarded them at the scene. He thought they were useless. He scooped up, there was a, a slew of cigarette butts. They're nervous. They're smoking on the way to do this. The cigarette butts had amylase, which is a constituent of saliva, which has DNA. So that was a, a very effective tool for that uh, prosecution. But throwing away the little liquor bottles, he probably just was like, ah, oh, these are, you know, who knows who's the, who these are. They might have been, you know, the owner of the car that's reported stolen. Never, never assume. <laughs> I mean, that case was successful without them, but keep everything. Means motive opportunity. He had it. He's the last person to see her alive. He's the person that gave a ridiculous reason for her to be missing on this bicycle. I don't think there's any evidence she was ever on the bicycle, except the bike was missing. But again, how would a stranger know that was her bike to go stage that? And the bike's in one direction, the helmet's in another. It's, you know, how would a stranger know the girls weren't there? I mean, none of it makes any sense. And most strangers do not cause themselves more headache 
So you're driving one direction to throw the bike, another direction to throw the helmet, another direction to hide her body. A stranger wouldn't have to do any of that. And another thing that I will tell people to watch if they want to, there is body cam of when they take him into the house to look for the clothes that she would be wearing if she were on a bike. He walked straight in, goes straight to the bedroom, goes straight to their closet where the hamper is, looking for these clothes. If it were me and my husband was missing, by the time I hit that doorway, I'm looking around. What's not right? If I left Walt McCollum in the bed, all I got to do is look at that coffee pot. And I can tell you, honey, there ain't no coffee. They took him by five o'clock in the morning. I'm telling you, he's, if there is no coffee, he's dead. Yeah. I can tell you. But he doesn't do that. There's a glass on the counter that looks like a glass you would have for like orange juice or water, like a regular drinking glass. He doesn't look at it, doesn't say, hey, she had to be up and she at least had orange juice. He doesn't look at dishes in the sink or on the stove. Nothing. He is A to B. Right. And and the reason for that, Cheryl, is because all he's thinking is a one-dimensional thinking of staging an area. That's the only thing in the, on his mind. Not the questions that can come from that staging. It's just staging something so someone has a quick optic of that's here, that's here. Maybe she rode a bike. Maybe she did this. You know, the thought process of all right, what if someone questions me about this? What if someone says it is not on his mind? And that's why, you know, those those weird things happen that he just bypasses things that you would normally do like you just said. You know, that's when when you, again, you start making notes and mental notes and stuff like that. But, you know, when people are staging crime scenes, that's the sole thing on their mind. Make sure it looks good. And when, and when they show up at the crime scene, they don't ask the questions you think they would because they know the answers. Back to OJ. And that's one of the common screw-ups. They're so thinking about that stuff Tom said, how do I stage it? They're not asking the questions or doing the actions of a normal person. Think to yourself, if you forget your keys, I always keep my keys here. They're not here. Where could they be? You get that semi-panic, right? Or your cell phone. Where is it? Where did I leave it? Yeah. <laughs> you would ask normal questions. Was I in the car? Was I, you know. When you don't see that out of somebody, uh, you know, that's very unusual. Again, this is circumstantial stuff, but we're painting a picture. And when you have a broad enough picture of a person acting very unusual, then you have reason to really dig in. And I can tell they did that with this case, which it was the right thing to do. And, you know, when we're talking about motive, Suzanne and Barry met in high school. So for her to choose to have an affair with somebody that she knew from high school, that might be a little more sting to somebody's ego as well. Because, you know, Walt and I met in high school. And, you know, I might ask him, hey, do you remember Lorraine? Well, he doesn't remember her. You know, she was in the chess club. You know, she was in the debate team. He don't remember her. But if I say, do you remember, you know, Sasha, the big cheerleader, you know, that can hardly fit in the sweater, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he remembers Sasha immediately, you know, yeah. knows her class schedule. So I'm saying there, if, if Walt was paying more attention to Sasha, it might be a little more of a, why are you talking to her at our reunion so much? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So for Barry, the big, you know, athlete, the big, you know, the man that's made such a great way in the world, having this Liebler, again, may add to if he walked back home and that's who she's FaceTiming with or texting while she's wearing a bathing suit. 
And again, if we're talking about somebody who has uh, narcissism in their in their heart and soul, and they're a sociopath, and they just are really, really ego driven, this kind of stuff is devastating to anybody. But to a person like that, it is soul crushing, and it requires an action that puts you back in a position of control, and makes you feel like you righted the world. A lot of people would just would just suffer, feel terrible, get self destructive when this happens. But some people decide, mm -mm, it's time for action. You know, there's a lot of interesting parts to this case. If you don't mind, I'll just kick in with something that, that I was reminded of. No, please. His daughters, their daughters, seem very, very, very much behind the father. That could be for a reason of, of dynamics within the family. It can be because he was a great father to them. It can be for a lot of reasons. But that's usually pretty telling. Now, when kids are in a situation like this where one parent has allegedly killed the other, a lot of times they don't know who to side with. But a normal tendency for a kid is to side with mom because uh, mom is the nurturer. And it, it just, it, I, I watched these press conferences and the daughters are hand in hand with him and they're absolutely convinced he's innocent. And that can be very powerful to public opinion. It doesn't mean a thing in the court, but it can be very powerful to public opinion. And it, and it makes you scratch your head. Well, I want to piggyback on that because I've got a friend, Betsy Ramsey. She always talks about the two theory. Too angry, too rich, too good looking, too mad, too religious, whatever it is, you better flag that. So when you see the daughters literally, like you said, holding hands with him, walking out of court, holding hands, always sitting as close as they possibly can, holding his hand, that's a flag. It's actually too much. I mean, in the beginning, sure. But now your mom has been missing all this time. And when she is recovered, her remains are recovered. You put out a statement saying, we're grieving. We thought she was going to walk back in the door. Where did you think she was? Your mama would not leave you. Your mama wouldn't miss a cancer appointment. She wouldn't do that. So that statement does not ring true to me. One of the very interesting little twists to this case is uh, during the examination of uh, the truck, Barry's truck, they found DNA, um, unknown DNA, it says, found on the glove box. I'm uh, sorry, it's Suzanne's Range Rover. Wasn't Barry's. It was similar, similar to the DNA of one male with three sexual assaults when it was put into CODIS. So now, first of all, I don't understand how similar works in DNA. It's a hit or it's not. But um, the male with three sexual assaults, who is this person? Was there any relation to this person being in that area at that time? Or is this a person who lives and is, or is, is sitting in a prison in Missouri? We don't know. And so, so that hasn't come out that I have read. Uh, if you know more, I'd love to hear it. But DNA that didn't match him found on a glove box. Um, it's not it's a question, right? And that's the kind of thing a defense can hang on to. Mm -hmm. But who is this person that they're, I mean, for them to throw up that it was similar to one male with three sexual assaults uh, in their history, that's bizarre. And it opens the door to during the course of the medical examiner's examination, is it going to come back that she was sexually assaulted? And if so, is there DNA found there? And does it match this? If that's the case, you've got a whole different perspective on this case, right? You have Somebody did something to her. It doesn't come back to Liebler. doesn't come back to the husband. comes back to the same strand that was found in her car. 
then we have uh, Houston, we have a problem. Um, but if the person was in her car, how does the bike come into the situation that it's thrown off the mount? It's weird, right? Everything about this case is weird. Yeah. And to me, you have to look at how lucky is this person with the unknown DNA that Barry is going to be out of town when he arguably should not have been on Mother's Day on a Sunday where he can't work. His hotel room smelling like Clorox. He's throwing trash in all these different places. The bike is in one direction, the helmet's in another, and I'm going to maintain, I do not know many men that are going to make a job more difficult. So if you snatch this woman, her bike is not necessary. Nobody knows who you are anyway. Take her, take her into this unknown place, try to dig a grave in that rock hard dirt and get on with, with your life. This person didn't do this. This person took the time to get her drive her 30-something miles from the house, take her bike and put it in one place, take her helmet and put it in another. I mean, that's a lot of work for somebody that's not associated with her. So if you think about where that DNA could have come from, there's a million reasons why somebody, you, you, she could have gotten her car serviced. She could have been to a car wash and had a, you know, a full service. Somebody comes in and washes. You, know, you never know who, what it would be good to look at her records for her credit card statements, et cetera. Have you had car service? Who works at that car service? Um, that these kind of things, and I'm, I'm not saying they didn't do that. I don't know the insides of the case, but these are angles to look at to either eliminate or shift to a different suspect. You know, and, and you bring up DNA, Dan, you know, one of the things that I, uh, I thought of earlier with the hotel room and the tools that were accessible, I would have, Listen, a lot of bad guys clean off their own property, you know, if it's used in the commission of a crime. I would have torn all those pipes apart in that hotel room to see if they were cleaned, if anything's in the pipes, if anything's in the bathtub, anything around there could have been, you know, a DNA catch. Uh, you know, I was thinking of that before, and then you just brought the DNA up. So I, I went back to the hotel room. I would have been all over that, those pipes. To me, again, let's go back to the unknown person. How lucky is that guy that Barry Morphew decided, I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode. I'm going to have no contact with my wife on Mother's Day. I'm not going to plan anything for Mother's Day. I'm going to, you know, come off with a mountain lion first thing. I'm not going to search for her. I'm going to offer a reward for $100,000, but it's got an expiration date. <laughs> How lucky is this stranger that he murdered Suzanne Morphew and Barry's going to act this way? Right. It's, it's illogical, right? It doesn't make any sense that it would be anybody else with him. Uh, it just doesn't sound like it. But remember, we still got to have that evidence. You got to have something to charge somebody with a homicide in this country, you have to have more. You have to have um, compelling evidence, clear, because you're looking at the rest of a person's life in prison and you're looking at an answer for a dead person and you want to get the right answer. Amen. And I think her remains are going to do that. If you're going to do it, do it and get them good. You know, don't kind of halfway around it. You know, uh, we say it all the time, Dan. We've said on, on other things. If you're going to do it, do it. Take your time doing it and get all that's needed to keep him in. And you know what? When they arrested him the first time before the body was found, 
There might have been a strategy. I'm sure there was. Uh, maybe they had hoped that he would crumble during an interrogation. This is real. We got you. Um, you can sit somebody down and you can tell them, hey, you're done. You're toast. And psychologically, it's very impactful. But if this guy truly is narcissistic and sociopathic, any room he th he's in, he thinks he's the smartest person in the room. He thinks that you're all, you know, subordinate to him. So he looks at you and he's laughing inside. Yeah, whatever. You know, and I have no idea what took place during any, any post-arrest interrogation or if there even was one. If he lawyered up, I don't know. But I just, I just know that uh, with a guy like this, that might have not been the move that would work. Well, Tom Smith and Dan Murphy, I cannot thank y'all enough for being with us tonight. It is just an honor for me to talk to y'all and to call y'all friends. And I'm going to tell you, Tom, I love what you said about Dan, about, you know, keeping you on the right path and let's not, <laughs> you know, violate somebody's civil rights and get in trouble. Um, but I tell people all the time, this is why I call it Zone 7. You know, those people that are in your Zone 7 have your back, have your best interests, cheer for you, support you, love you, tell you when you're wrong. So Tom Smith and Dan Murphy, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity and, and just absolutely love being here. And, you know, we have a thing in the NYPD, Cheryl, like you mentioned earlier. Now you're in our world. You're in part of our family. You're screwed. And you're mm. not getting rid of us. <laughs> you're done. Yeah. Your, love, love. You knew it, your life as you knew it is over. Forget yeah. it. Yeah. You have no idea how long I've waited to hear that. <laughs> but I adore you both. And uh, uh, absolutely, we are family now. Yes. Yep. Absolutely, Cheryl. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, it's an honor to be on Zone 7 with you, and we look forward to uh, having a great many more conversations with you about cases in the future and uh, talking about so many more interesting things because you are absolutely an expert in what you do, and we, we will learn a lot from you, that's for sure. And y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote. No friendship is an accident. Oh, Henry, I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. <laughs>